Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So the trend remains in place for oil to continue falling. Does it go much farther? What's the uh, what's the next support level, and and can it break through it? Wood Mackenzie's uh, Skip York is with us, and uh, Skip, uh, people are saying forty dollars. Is that because it's a round number, or uh, or is there some significance to forty as 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 the next resistance point? Well, I think it's helpful that uh, that forty is a round number, but. Uh when we look at our wellhead economics, we see there just isn't a lot of oil that works sub 40. So 40 is a good number to hang to uh, because now that non-OPEC is in decline and demand continues to grow, at some point we're going to need new supply to come into the market to keep it balanced out. If your cheapest oil uh, in the non-OPEC world is in the $40 range, then that's probably a fairly good floor to, to hang your hat on. Well, Mike, can I interrupt? No. Wellhead, Wellhead <laughs> Economics was a great band. I saw them open for Sleep at the Wheel. They were great. Um, we have had reports lately that oil, more oil is starting to come to market. And uh, the drink, drill rig count is up. And our friend Alex Steele, who is our oil commodities nerd, says, you know, the, the frackers are coming back now. Well, what we're starting to see is uh, we're starting to see some rigs creeping back in. Uh, we're starting to see oil kind of starting to slow. The declines are slowing down. So what the first will, those uh, rigs that are coming into the field will do is they won't return the U.S. supply back to a growth mode, but it'll start slowing down the rate of decline. And we're starting to see that activity starting to come in. When we talk to those small producers, the ones that are procuring the rigs, their concern is they can get two or three rigs today. They might be able to get two or three rigs tomorrow, but could they get 100 rigs? And just in terms of, you know, is the equipment still there uh, in, in working condition? And the second one is how am I going to hire people? I think what's important for people to remember is that when we went through the last, the tight oil surge in 2009 and 2010, when that started, unemployment was at 9.5%. Today, on unemployment's 4.9%. So it's going to be a much tighter labor market in general. And, uh, you know, anecdotally, a lot of those guys that were released over the last 18 months have wandered off and found other jobs. Other jobs yeah. Is it true, do you buy the idea we hear from some, that the income statement dynamics of a given oil company is okay because, yes, price is down, but the expense of doing business is down as well? Is that true? Well, it is true, but you know prices have fallen more than their than the cost basis have fallen down. So, you know, and you see you see earnings under a lot of pressure. You saw that last week with you know with BP, Chevron, and so when and you see Mobile. those announcements, are they one offs or is there a chronic nature to the carnage we saw? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a true economist and say it's both. On the one hand, it it's the one offs because we know that prices were low. We knew that we earnings ought to be yeah. weak. What you need to be watching is, do they have a strategy? You know, oil companies should not be managing their their income statements on a quarter-by-quarter quarter basis. So do you have belief that, yes, the second quarter was bad, but I believe that you've got plans in place that's going to either stem the decline in the third or fourth quarter or actually then eventually turn things around? What uh, is the time frame for eventually turning things around? 
I think you're looking, uh, you know, from a corporate perspective, you know, you're probably looking into 2017. At this point, you know, a lot of 2016 is pretty much locked in Yeah. Uh, uh, from an activity basis. Even if oil prices rise, we've sort of seen that, is that as oil prices doubled from February, we didn't see a lot of activity on the physical side. We saw, you know, rigs didn't really recover until May or okay. June. So is it, this is important, what Mike brought up. As a pro, we went 29 worlds coming to an end to 40. Right. Great. Everybody was saying we'd have a workout in the second half of 2016. I just heard you say that's not going to happen. Are you surprised that didn't happen? Well, what we're surprised is we're not really surprised with the, with the lack of activity because, you know, a lot of the oil outside of the U.S. and, it, you know, the, the $40 oil, the, the oil that works in the 40s is largely concentrated in the non-OPEC world, it's largely concentrated in West Texas, and that's where the rigs are coming back. But we didn't expect to see a lot of activity in the re- outside of the Permian, whether it be in the U.S. or in the other parts of the non-OPEC world, because you know we just didn't hit a threshold that told them to trigger. Actually, something I wanted to ask you about uh, when I knew you were coming on today, and that is the non-OPEC world. Uh, we haven't paid a whole lot of attention to what's been going on in Russia lately. The ruble this morning at 66 uh, it, it's moved into the 60s and sort of stabilized there. Uh, what's their production like, and, and are they making any money on oil right now? Well, they're probably you know the they're probably making on money on oil because the cost basis last year reset so so dramatically uh, in Russia, and it and what it did is is it was one of the few places where the cost basis actually fell faster than oil prices fell, and that's why we saw so much activity, and their their production has held up so far. Uh, the question is, you know, can they can they lock those costs in? When outside of the outside of the U.S. and outside of the rest of uh, the rest of Russia, you know, you're seeing declines uh, in the rest of the world. You know, we're off about a million barrels a day in the U.S. We're off about 500,000 barrels a day in the rest of the non-OPEC world. And then we get these unplanned outages that show up in in places like wildfires in in Canada, which have largely recovered. Uh, and then Nigeria's off 400,000 barrels a day. So there is oil coming out out of the supply side. Some of it is being driven by economics, some of it's being driven by above ground issues like uh, political <clears throat> turmoil in Nigeria. But you know, the non-OPEC world is contracting uh, and that's what's driving this market. In, it's a slow process, but that's what's driving this market right. back into balance. Do you have a calculated terminal value out five years? That's uh, part of what you guys do. Yeah, so if we're out five years, we think we're in you know the low, I'll call it the low 80s, 80 to 85. I almost uh, choked on my coffee there. Be careful, Skip. Come on. <laughs> this and, is my shirt for the week. Well, and, and you eighty dollars? Well, yeah, because when you know the you there just isn't enough sixty dollar oil to work. When you think about between now and twenty twenty, global supply needs to replace nine and a half million barrels a day of supply, and that there just isn't nine and a half million barrels a day of new supply at sixty dollars. We're going to get an education right now from Skip York of Wyoming and Virginia. Dr. York, I want to talk to you about downstream. Baytown Refinery, 1919 ExxonMobil capacity, $584,000 barrels a day. I would assume 99.9% of the surveillance audience would know a refinery if they drove by it. First of all, is it a rusted, rusted hulk? Because it was built in 1919, or is it like state-of-the-art modern? It would be a, a state-of-the-art facility in particular if you, you know, the thing to remember is that if a refinery was built in 1919, it, 
it's probably been rebuilt three or four times in, yeah. in, 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 in a hundred years. And so if you went down into the, along the Houston Ship Channel, you know, you're around a lot of refineries that have been around a hundred years, but you wouldn't know it by looking at them. They'd be shiny steel. Uh, you know, you wouldn't see a lot of rust around them because, you know, rust is corrosion. Corrosion can create, uh, you know, leakages. And that's just something that, you know, that's not healthy for an oil refinery. And so you see that they're actually fairly well kept. I, up. I don't do this to be snarky, but with immense respect, particularly when I think of our images of refineries in Eastern Europe and Russia and all that. Are these polluters? Well, certainly there 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 is an emo, an, an emissions profile uh, to them. There's just no escaping it. When you're converting hydrocarbons, you're going to release uh, smaller hydrocarbons and and carbon, and those things go into the atmosphere. I think the, the important thing to remember is how much cleaner they are now than say 15, 20, 25 years ago. Uh, so that they've the, there is an emissions profile, but it's a much smaller profile than it has been historically, and it continues <clears throat> that profile continues to shrink. If you, and I don't mean to catch you unawares here. Help us with three emotions. Los Angeles, I couldn't see the mountains when I was a kid. Now I can. I guess that's autos, autos. trucks. You have refineries, and you've got the dawning awareness that everybody's flying around in jet aircraft, which I believe are polluting. Which is the biggest offender? The, oh, Without I, pinning you down, which is the which is the one you think about is being the bad guy, I, or are know, none of them because they're relatively better. They're all relatively better, but sort of which one you know probably if you think about uh, autos in particular in California, the California autos, they're they're probably the biggest improvement. Refineries are probably number two, and I would sort of say that, you know that that jet fuel is probably. Okay. The less improvement, but we're making now we're making efforts in jet fuel that we were making right. in autos 20 years ago. What does big oil want? Obviously, they want to make more money and more return on invested capital. I get that. But do they want to do it within a green upstream to downstream profile? Or is it just sort of a PR stunt off? You know, you guys take care of that while we go make the marginal barrel. No, I, I think if you ask the, the refiner, you know, if you ask refiners or you ask the integrated oil companies, what do they want? They want regulatory certainty, and they want let's regulate the end, re, let, let's regulate the tailpipe, not regulate the process. So tell me what it is you want. Let me figure out what's the most cost-effective way because because of the margin environment. Let me figure out the most cost-effective way to get that emission reduction that you're looking for. And part of it is, and this is a word from Secretary Clinton, fair play. Uh, Hillary Clinton years ago, folks, is I, I'm going to say a senator, I can't remember when, talked about fair trade. Are the refineries state to state, and then looking at Canada, Mexico, and Europe, are we fair or are we trying to be too strict with ours where they can't compete? Well, I, th I think um, what we're discovering is that you know, our refineries... Our refineries can compete even with a, a more stringent regulatory environment that we see in other parts of the world because the cost base is different. In particular, natural gas is a huge advantage. It's worth probably $4 a barrel to a U.S. refinery. But when you look at the regulatory structure around the world, it's it's a checkerboard. I mean, you know, the, the, the new refineries tend to be much uh, more in, in emissions efficient just because they're state-of-the-art refineries, but not every refinery has the same right. – 
When you uh, see a capability. research note saying we're switching from summer fuel to winter fuel, is that noise in the $40 a barrel debate, or is that actually something that can move price and move the rate of change of price? It should be It should be noise. In terms of crude oil prices, it should It should be in the noise because we, we make that summer to winter shift every year. Yeah. So uh, and and it's and it's a blending issue. It's not that we're going to refine a different crude. We're going to. It's not we're refining less crude. It's that we're going to blend the gasoline differently using different blending components in the winter than yeah. we do in the fall than we do in the summer. But it's still the same. But component. Mike, this is a huge issue. I'm having more and more trouble finding decent gas for the Nash Rambler. <laughs> I mean, I, I, sorry. I it mean, the blends on, are like too his, perfect. His, gas, his car runs on leaded gas. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, been it's, that it's long a serious problem. It's not funny. Uh, I mean, you, you go over no, to Helix. <laughs> Skip York is always great. mentioned earlier the idea that the uh, equity markets and the bond markets are sort of seeing the possibility of uh, the Fed different ways, although I don't want to make too much of it because the moves aren't that big. But Ira Jersey is a senior portfolio manager at Oppenheimer Funds, and he has to uh, follow both sides of the argument. And he joins us now here in the studio. Ira, uh, the equity markets seem to be thinking the GDP report, bad news, is good news. Uh, the Fed won't tighten, and therefore we can continue to uh, buy uh, stocks. Uh, whereas in the bond market, they're sort of a little unsure about what's going on now with Bill Dudley and uh, Robert Kaplan out saying, "Hey, don't rule out September." Yeah, I think I think there's always some confusion when you get Fed speak and you have presidents like, especially big names like Bill Dudley, who are considered one of the three kind of primary um, primary members of the Federal Open Market Committee that help set policy and, and people follow them closely. Uh, so when he says, hey, September's a live meeting, you can't completely discount it. I, th- I think what they're trying to do here, Mike, is bring back some optionality. I mean, they basically the markets have completely discounted all of their talk. They've discounted um, the dot plot and all of the uh, statements that they've made at, at the June meeting and, and even the July meeting. So they were in a real quandary because they want to be able to hike and, and prep the the market for them to be able to hike, but they have a real problem doing it. And, and some of this Fed speak is the way that they attempt that. When your traders come to you and say, what's the Fed going to do? What are you telling them? So I, I think that the Fed probably, well, the, I think the Fed's not going to hike in September. Um, I, I think that's pretty clear. The market's not prep for it. Yes, you get two employment numbers before them, but um, but generally speaking, you're not going to have enough confidence in order to uh, in order to hike again. Uh, in but by then, I think December is a distinct possibility. Um, you continue with the trends that we've had uh, in the U.S., and you wind up with um, with it becoming clear that that. Brexit's not going to affect Europe in, in such a significantly uh, detrimental way that they'll actually be able to hike. Um, you know, one of the things about Europe in particular is that they've always surprised to the upside over the last three years. Um, that that growth there has uh, has picked up. It, it might slow a tenth or two, but a tenth or two is not going to be enough for uh, for the Fed to say, "Hey, things are really bad. Let's uh, let's remain on hold forever." Well, the uh, the September meeting approaches. Um could the market start to price something in if we get better numbers that then gives them the optionality, or is it just uh, too far off the 
radar screen. I think it's probably too far off. You probably won't. Uh, I I don't think that you'll price in more than a, more than a fifty percent chance. Which is, you know, that, that doesn't mean that they they can't hike. Uh, certainly, the Federal Open Market Committee controls interest rates, so they can do what they they'd like to do. But the market, uh, I don't think will will ultimately. Well, should price they? Anything. I mean, are they getting pushed around by the markets in a, in a way that is not good for? Monetary policy making. So this is always the conundrum when you sit in my seat on a you know buy side shop as a fixed income strategist is you know is is it my job to opine on uh, what the Fed should do or what the Fed will do and and what the Fed will do is more important to us because that's the way that we wind up uh, positioning our portfolio for um, for for any. Uh, central bank movements. I, I think that they probably shouldn't. Um, you know, when you when you talk to our chief investment officer, Krishna Mamani, and we look at um, you know everything going on in the world and, and some of the fragilities in the global financial world, still the Fed needs to go very slowly and very cautiously because you know they, they are concerned. When you talk to some Fed officials and and you ask them, hey, what is your biggest concern? It's financial tightening. Um, well. They won't be tightening financial policy if that's their big concern. It's math August. Let's get started. <laughs> I thought it wasn't F- the school year yet. Yeah, <laughs> FV, or it starts every day is a school year at the Keene household. FV equals PV one plus R to the T. What if there's no T? Ira Jersey on perpetual bonds. The math of this is, is not sobering, but... <laughs> It is something to be respected. How do you respond when irresponsible people say, what we need is perpetual bonds? Well, you know, the, the question is, if we do have perpetual bonds, will they have other features like call features and the like? Uh, you know, one of the things that if you go back in the forever history, I'm going to nerd out here a little bit, but if you go back to the, the 1600s, 1700s, and early 1800s, you didn't have maturities on bonds. Um, you know, bonds were issued by governments, and they were perpetuals, and they all had call features, so so the governments could recall them at, uh, at, any, uh, at any point. And, of course, they did that when interest rates became lower and they became better credit quality, so then they would call them. Yeah, you know, when we do have a lot of them outstanding today, in fact, a lot of bank capital notes um, have to be issued with very, either extremely long maturities or as perpetuals. So the, you know, these types of securities still exist. They all have call features, whether they can be called every five years or every 10 years, they can still be called, but, but they still do exist. And you know, they, do they have more risk than, say, a 30-year or 50-year bond? You know, the bond math says no. Um, in reality, you know, they, they could be outstanding for a very long period of time. But as long as they keep on paying their coupon, then the investors should be, uh, should be okay with that. But, but they do provide a certain um, amount of special risk. What do you see happening as far as yields going through the rest of the year, shall we say? Well, I think I think long-term yields, you know, ten-year yields, thirty-year yields in the U.S. will wind up being uh, relatively range-bound. Um, there's the possibility that they could even move lower. Um, I think there's two two ways that they can move lower. One is that you wind up with a slowing economic environment and um, people, uh, other central banks, wind up cutting interest rates further. Uh, you can see that potentially in, in Europe and, and in some of the emerging markets. Um, if that were to happen, the U.S. being, again, the high yielder vis-a-vis some of these other jurisdictions ends up being a beneficiary of that, so 10-year yields can move lower. Um, the, the second way, which is, I think, less likely, 
likely uh, if, if for yields to move uh, move lower in, in the long end would be if the Federal Reserve were to hike in September and then potentially in December. So you wind up with a lot of calls that the Fed's making a policy mistake. There are going to be um, more calls that, that this will be deflationary or disinflationary. And you wind up with a, a much flatter yield curve. So two-year front-end yields go moving higher while long-end yields like 10s and 30s wind up moving lower um, just because of the uh, uh, you know the outlook that that the Fed's making a mistake. Um, ultimately, though, I think that that ten-year yields probably a range bound between, you know, call it the 140 area up to uh, up to maybe 160, 170 um, for for the remainder of the year. What do you think the Fed needs to see from the markets before they feel comfortable? Well, I don't know if it's so much the markets. I think they have to be extremely comfortable, and it has to they have to have clear and convincing evidence from. Um, from the economy, from the, from the data side, in order to for, for the markets to be convinced that the Federal Reserve is able to hike. And it's not only data here in the U.S., but it is yeah. uh, data globally that really matters. I, I think the removal – one thing that I found really interesting in the statement last week from the, from the Federal Market Committee statement was uh, the removal of this – you know, the, the, their fear about what was going on in the global – global economy. Um, I think that there was a big fear that, you know, Brexit would wind up being very detrimental to both markets and, and the real economy in Europe. Um, and the expectations are that, yes, it's going to maybe lead to a slight slowdown, but it's not really, uh, uh, it's not really the, the worst case scenarios and not likely to play out. Where are you on the adjustment of our GDP? Quietly, the shock last week was the Atlanta Derby went under 2% and a day later, that's what we saw. Right. That was a big surprise. It was. I mean, particularly on the investment side and on the inventory side. So that that was really the weak part of the economy. You wound up, and uh, you know, you wind up looking at things like personal consumption, which is the largest part of GDP. Yeah. And the expectations were for it to be, um, you know, relatively robust, and it came in a little bit lower than expectations, but it wasn't wasn't so low that if the rest of the um, if the rest of the the data in the report had uh, had kept up pace, then then you know you'd wind up with more or less an as expected report. I, I think the the real worrying thing is the business investment side. So business investment was down um, on an annualized basis, almost ten percent. That's really worrying because if you ha- don't have animal spirits, if you don't have businesses growing, and you, uh, that means that you the likelihood that you have um, extended employment growth and uh, and and a more robust economy is uh, is unlikely. Yeah, but you know where the risk free rate is. I mean, if they're running a dividend discount. You know, if they're running some sort of net present value, rather, analysis, can you give them a plug-in number to do in a net present value analysis of a project? Uh, so, well, <laughs> I guess that depends on, on, you know, the growth rate of the of that, that you um, that you subscribe to what your right. um, what your sales are going to be or, or how you're going to make revenue from that particular project, too. Right. So the risk free rates near zero uh, credit spreads are very low. So the, so the borrowing environment is. Um, is extremely positive. But that doesn't mean that if, if your expectations are for growth to slow and for personal consumption to slow, right. then you're not going to invest. Mike, here's a British triple B, S&P triple B piece out to 2073. Mike, you're going to be doing the show solo <laughs> in 2073. It's gone from 100 to 112. So the bonds appreciated 12%. Off a five and five eighths coupon to yield 4%, 4.00%. So that's like a perpetual yield. I guess you could almost base your net present value study out, what, 60 years? 
Well, yeah. I mean, for us, it's perpetual. <laughs> there may be some people in the millennial generation. I don't know where the, I don't know how you, it might I don't know how you do investment analysis as an adult CFO. Well, that is a, I mean, it's an interesting whole topic. You know, when people talk about 100-year bonds, I mean, how do you analyze? Totally, I mean, you're sure. not going to be around to, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's funny when, when companies have issued bonds um, that were, you know, older, that, that, that matured. Um, well beyond what they had already existed. You know, Disney did a 100-year bond a, a few years ago, and, you know, they'd been in existence for 60-odd years, um, and they issued a 100-year bond. Um, I, I think those very long-term bonds, I mean, they, they do have some value to someone, but, um, you know, for most people, when you're trying to... Uh, wh why do you buy a bond? You buy a bond because you either need income or you have some liability that you need to, to match. So if you're an insurance company and you say, okay, the average person who I am insuring their life is going to live for 30, 30 years. So therefore, I need to buy 30-year bonds. You know, the people who buy a 100-year bond are, you know, thinking that, hey, I just need income. Um, they're not someone who's matching any type of real liability. And, and that's one of the reasons why people always say, like, why aren't, isn't the U.S. government issuing 50-year bonds or 60-year mm -hmm. bonds? And one is that it really, for the people who tend to buy very long-dated assets, it doesn't do much for them because they don't really have a need to buy 50- and 60-year bonds. The need is in the more 30-year space. So the government's just decided, hey, I'll issue more 30 years instead of anything longer. Uh, very quickly, about 30 seconds, is anything overseas look attractive? We got a lot of central banks meeting this week. Yeah, so so overseas, I mean, we like some some emerging market debt is pretty attractive to us. Um, our big uh, our big like kind of non consensus is India. Uh, we where you can actually get seven percent yields, and I, I know your eyes are probably going to bug out of your head when you hear, oh my goodness, there's seven percent yield somewhere in the world. You know, it's investment grade country. It uh, it's liberalizing their economy. They uh, they're doing some economic reforms, um, you know, slowly but also steadily. Um, so places like that, we uh, we're, we're no. overweight. In in, uh, uh, in places like India. Ira Jersey, thank you so much, particularly for the perpetual interview. Mr. Jersey is with Oppenheimer uh, Funds. James Trevitas with us with the Fletcher School. In a previous life, he was an admiral and knows something about this linkage of our military to our politics. Um, I've got to rip up the script, Admiral Stravitas. Good morning. And uh, look at the idea of the military at conventions. All I could think about was General Dem Dempsey's criticism of General Allen and others being at a convention was I believe in my collective memory, someone named Eisenhower <laughs> wandered in as a retired general and made an impact at a convention. Should people like Stravitas be at political conventions? Well, first I'll say I think these are intensely personal decisions for the officers involved. Number two, uh, every citizen, whether a military officer or a butcher, baker, or candlestick maker, certainly has the right uh, to do that. That's why we have a military to defend those rights. And number three, I think that it depends on the election and it depends on the time. So when you point, I think correctly, Tom, to somebody like Ike, uh, who comes in uh, and as, at a moment of national desire to uh, embody that greatest generation and make someone a president, I think that works. Uh, I think for General Allen, I support what he did at the convention. I think he did the right thing. He feels very strongly about this election. 
Well, that was the argument that he made, that this is a, a one-off, um, that he wouldn't do this ordinarily, but the, the you know, danger he sees is so great that he felt he had to get involved. But the other generals uh, you know, who've, who've been quoted on this say it makes it harder for those of us still on active duty. Um, can you My, see from, from that point of view? I can, uh, although having served 37 years on active duty, and in the course of that period we saw generals like Wes Clark run for president, I never felt that that particularly tinged uh, the politics of my life, even as a very senior officer. Again, I, I don't think we're going to see a rash of generals and admirals leaping into the political fray. Uh, but I think if a particular officer feels strongly and feels this is an election that really matters and wants to do it, then I am supportive of that. Could, could I point out, Mike, and the biggest problem with you guys, with all the brass on your shoulders, is your bios are too damn long. Buried in the <laughs> middle of the Stravitas bio is a single trenchant sentence, Mr. McKee. He was the longest serving combatant commander in recent U.S. history. That goes back, I think, to Washington Cross in the Delaware. Mike, pick it up. <laughs> I'm not sure what that exactly means, but it sounds like uh, a pretty good thing. Um, uh, well, what it impressive. means is, um, you know, we have these, uh, we have nine combatant commands around the world. U.S. European Command, U.S. Southern Command for Latin America, Central Command for the Middle East, etc. I happen to hold two of those uh, over the course of seven years, Southern Command, Latin America, European command while I was concurrently the NATO commander. I attribute that to a computer error of some kind, Tom. Uh -huh. uh, I, was, um, I was fascinated listening to uh, General Allen over the weekend uh, when he was asked, what happens if we get a President Trump and he follows through on what he says he will do, uh, ordering the military to do things like torture or, or kill families of uh, the enemy, that sort of thing. And he said we would have a, a, a military civilian crisis. Uh, what, what would that mean, and, and how would you deal with that? I think the first thing that would happen is you would see uh, resignations of extremely senior officers. Uh, secondly, I think you'd see the Congress, uh, which regardless of party, I think would overwhelmingly not support uh, using our military for torture, i.e. waterboarding, using the military to kill the families of terrorists or any of the other things that have been mentioned. Um, and this is why we have checks and balances in the system. I actually think it would be more of a legislative executive branch kind of crisis than a civil military crisis. You don't think we would get that far then? I don't. I don't think you'd see a, a military in revolt because I think the Congress would act immediately. And, and let's face it, waterboarding is illegal. It's against the laws of the United States. So the Congress would never countenance yeah. uh, the executive branch overturning the law and the judicial branch would not support it. Admiral, could you place in context the number of Muslims in our military? There has been a terrific focus on one brave soul. But I think a lot of Americans say, OK, there's like seven people in the army. I mean, that's like the knee jerk reaction. And yet that can't be true. You've got experience at War College. You've got experience at Fletcher. Of course, your Navy and Pentagon experience is well. How does the military actually deal with a diverse set of people, and particularly with Muslims? I mean, it's just they're just another person, right? 
Yeah, exactly, Tom. And I, I think uh, in so many ways, the military tends to be the the canary in the tunnel for society. We sort of led the way on yeah. uh, integration in the military. We well, led the way in many ways on women. And I think uh, Muslims, the same. Uh, Tom, we have conversations these days about Wiccans, uh, you know, pagan worshipers in the military. We have very small numbers of a lot of different uh, religions. We have uh, a, a more moderate number of Muslims, but it's not an overwhelming yeah. number. But in my experience, they're extremely well accepted. But this goes in, in, in why you, again, our producer comes up with the statistic, 5,800 uh, Muslims within the military. I mean, Admiral, this goes back to outside the Thayer Hotel at West Point, is where the Buffalo soldiers practiced, where they, they got ready. I mean, you guys, the military is way out front of general society, right? It is. And, and the reasons for that are uh, simply because we're better organized. And if you make a decision, you actually can implement it down through the ranks and you don't have uh, huge amounts of pushback. Look at the uh, integration of gays now, uh, more recently, transsexuals into the military. That's all going very well. Uh, we do this. Uh, it's called following orders, and it's um, it works out pretty well in the military. doesn't mean we don't have problems. We continue to in all of these categories, but we, we meet those challenges. We put in programs, and I think generally people in the military join the military because they believe in freedom and uh, the ability to express yeah. yourself in, in that kind of way. Mike, West Point, March 23, 1907 is when the, the, the cavalry uh, and the Buffalo Soldiers happened, and before that... Yeah, and Tom, people may not know who the Buffalo Soldiers are. You certainly do. These were a very brave set of cavalry troops uh, who fought in the American West, uh, and with great deal of distinction over the years, the first uh, all-black units to go into major combat like that. Yeah. We are talking with Admiral James Trevitas, uh, Dean of the Fletcher School. We've been gossiping. Tufts University, we've been gossiping. Now we have him. to talk about real stuff. Yeah, we're going to talk about some specific issues. Uh, over the weekend, foreign policy certainly came up in the news with one of the candidates demonstrating sort of lack of knowledge about what's going on, but raising at least a question worth exploring, and that is, uh, does NATO have the value it once had is it worthwhile? Could it be changed? Should it be changed? And, uh, you know, are, are we being shortchanged by our NATO involvement? Yeah, I don't think uh, we're being shortchanged. And, you know, I'll stipulate that I'm a former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO for four years. So um, I am predisposed to admire the organization. But let me give you some facts. Um, NATO as an organization has been involved in counterterrorism in Afghanistan and in Iraq. It continues to deter adventurism on the part of Vladimir Putin to the east. It's very engaged in the Arctic in the north, and it's also involved in the crisis of migrants moving across the Mediterranean. It's a big muscular organization, 29 nations, 52 percent of the world's GDP, three million soldiers under arms, almost all volunteers. Why would we want to walk away from an organization like that? There is truth in the argument that some of those countries are not spending what they have committed to spend in terms of uh, providing uh, military or, or, or money to support the organization. You know, that's true, but let's keep it in perspective. And let me just do the numbers. This is Bloomberg. You guys respect numbers. We love numbers. I know. Okay, here we go. So the U.S. spent $600 billion a year on defense, which is a lot of money. The Russians spend about $80 billion. 
the Chinese spend about $120 billion. So Russian and Chinese spending together is $200 billion. How much do you think those Europeans spend? They spend $300 billion a year on defense. So they spend a ton of money. They, they spend more than Russia and China combined. Now, it is true they have set a goal of 2% of GDP. They are floating below that at about 1.6% of GDP. They have put in place plans as of the Warsaw Summit a month ago to hit those targets by 2020, and I think they will. So on balance, despite the fact that, yeah, they could spend a bit more, uh, I think it's pretty good value for the money. Admiral, you mentioned a word. I I love it. Adventurism. I looked at the Oxford English Dictionary. 1843 (laughs) was was the first uh, feeling of that. And it really harkens back to a Westphalian world and the tradition of a traditional military. Is that really what we're going back to? We're showing the flag and fleets and soldiers planted on foreign territory will be the new new? I think there will be a fair amount of that, Tom. Uh, What's going to be new, really new, alongside it is going to be conflict in cyberspace uh, with special forces, uh, with unmanned vehicles. So we're going to have a kind of high-tech version of that great game that you recall uh, from the 19th century. And uh, we need to be careful that we don't stumble back into some kind of a full-blown Cold War. I think we have the tools to navigate this, but we are going to see challenges from both Russia and China. What do you consider Crimea? That was one of the themes this weekend. Is Crimea part of the Ukraine that Russia's annexed? Is that the right word? You're lecturing at Fletcher. How do you draw Crimea on the map? Crimea is, in every sense, under international law, part of the sovereign state of Ukraine. It has been uh, annexed, is the correct word, by Russia, which has passed a law in the Duma, their parliament, that now says Crimea is part of Russia. There are some historical uh, antecedents and arguments that lend support to that, but under international law, this is a clear violation. Any international lawyer will tell you that. What can you do about it? I think from a pragmatic perspective, it's highly unlikely that Crimea is going to be returned to Ukraine. Uh, the Russian population there is making a very strong secessionist case. Um, and what you can do about it is put in place the sanctions that we have. And I think the trade space in the end will not be Crimea. The trade space is going to be uh, Russian troops in the southeastern portion of Ukraine, the Donbass. They're going to have to go. I think Ukraine in the end is going to have to swallow hard and accept that deal. Admiral Stravitas, thank you very much for joining us. Never enough time. Such a big world. We have to get him back soon to continue. Yeah, it never ends uh, with the him. foreign policy tour. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.